Good morning. Glad to be here with you today on Monday of Holy Week, a special day, and I pray that this will be a special journey this week as each day we look at the events or some of the events of that day in Holy Week. I'm in my uh, pastor study today, so I'm uh, happy to be in a slightly different setting, and it's good to be back in here. It's uh, normal work has been uh, just been different lately, hasn't it? Our lives have just been different lately, and uh, I know I, I miss you all, seeing you in person, and uh, I know we miss gathering as a church, and so hopefully this will be a little bit of, of something that'll feel a little bit like uh, normal as we can uh, have these messages. And so today we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday in our Sunday morning sermon, looking at the triumphal entry. We're going to begin in verse 12, and I'm going to begin where we should begin, with the reading of the Word of God. And it begins like this in verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. And that concludes our text for today. What great, a great text that is to look at today. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of interesting detail in it. As we look at it today, I want us to look at three points. And let me say before I say those three points that uh, as a preacher, you know, we just have to have our points. It helps us to stay organized, and it, uh, hopefully it'll help you to, to digest it as well. Uh, this won't be an hour-long sermon, but uh, hopefully it'll be instructive, and it'll just take as long as it needs to take, hopefully. Uh, but anyway, looking at this first point, a curious miracle, we want to see that there is a very curious miracle in this text, very curious. Second of all, we want to see a zealous action that Jesus took, and lastly, an instructive structure. There's a structure to this narrative that Mark gives us that is itself instructive to us on what we're being told. So starting first with, uh, with this idea of a curious miracle, it doesn't take us long to find out what that curious miracle is. I want to begin even before that by saying that isn't it interesting that this uh, day is marked very easily uh, for us to see. It starts in verse 12 with now the next day. So that tells us now it's Monday. And it ends in uh, verse 19 with when evening had come, he went out of the city. It's interesting that each day he enters the city and he leaves the city because he's staying in Bethany. And many people would uh, have tried to, um, you know, maybe make a theological reading of that and say, well, there just was no room for Jesus. And they are kind of referring back to the Bethlehem story and how there was no room in the inn and that sort of thing. Well, I think there is a point to be made that 
theologically there was no room for Jesus. But I, I think we could also miss the fact that Jesus probably enjoyed staying in Bethany. His friends were there. He loved his friends. You know, brothers and sisters, Jesus loves his people. He loves his people. He died for his people. So it shouldn't surprise us that he enjoyed the fellowship that he had in Bethany. He enjoyed his friends. He enjoyed this place that he could relax and gather with the people that he loved and they could spend time together and he could teach. And that's what we love, is it not? As the people of God, we love the fellowship of the saints. Jesus wants us to love that fellowship. He loved it and still loves it. He intercedes on our behalf, doesn't he, even this day? So, my friends, it's no surprise that he would go to Bethany. It's no surprise at all. And on the way back the next day to Jerusalem, where he's uh, spending his week uh, during the day, it says he's hungry. Mark tells us that he's hungry. How great a detail is this in showing us the, the full humanity of Christ. Yes, he is uh, very God of very God, but also very man of very man. Fully God and fully man. He had hunger as we do. And so he looks upon this fig tree, beautiful with the leaves. And he rides over to inspect it. And he finds no figs. That word inspect, I think, is important that we're using there because it ties this story back to the end of what we looked at yesterday. We didn't have time to exposit verse 11, but we read it. It said, and Jesus went into Jerusalem. This is after the triumphant entry and and the hosannas and the garments being flung down and the palm trees being waved and, and, and all of these things happening. Jesus goes into the temple and listen to this subtle detail. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus looked around at all things. He inspected the temple, which pointed to him. The temple was the place of God's presence amongst his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is God in flesh. God tabernacled among men. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, tabernacled amongst us. My friends, that temple pointed to Jesus. Jesus went and inspected this temple. Just as the next morning, he inspects this fig tree. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so many people look at this story of him not finding figs and him cursing the fig tree, and they, they say things like, is this in the character of Jesus? Well, my friends, first of all, they haven't understood the story to ask a question like that. But second of all, I would just say what the Scriptures say. Who are you, O man, to judge God? An extreme extreme version of that is T.W. Manson, who famously said that this was a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. My friends, that is not only so far, too far, That's irreverent, my friends. I I mean, to make a statement like that is mind-blowing. And completely misses what the story is about. Completely misses what Jesus is doing and what we are being taught by it. 
All you have to do is look back at the Old Testament picture of the fig tree. Over and over again, you'll see that it's a picture of Israel. Israel is often characterized as a fig tree in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 8.13, Jeremiah 29.17, Joel 1.7, Hosea 9.10, Hosea 9.16, on and on it goes. In fact, even uh, the fig tree is often associated with judgment. Hosea 2.12, Isaiah 34.4, many places we can see this. So Jesus comes to this fig tree symbolizing Israel, and he finds no fruit. That ought to catch our attention. You see, my friends, this is a story about judgment, isn't it? When you begin to see this picture of the fig tree and what Christ is about to do to it as he, he curses it, and that's what Peter calls it the next day. And we'll look at that text in just a moment. It symbolizes something more than itself, doesn't it? It's an event that has meaning beyond its face value. It becomes a symbol of something greater than itself, and that's what we see here. This is often the case with prophetic actions. They have a greater greater, uh, reality, I guess I could say, a greater truth than what they have at face value. The actions with which they are Uh, portrayed or brought forth themselves have significance. Isaiah 20, Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 4, examples of this. There's a judgment being spoken of here. We referred to it yesterday as we looked at the the triumphant entry and and the, the way the crowd received Jesus, not as he truly was, but as they desired him to be. And how that put them, even though they're cheering him, on the outside looking in. It'll be reiterated again in the next chapter. Because there we'll have the vineyard parable. Again, the vineyard, this this image of Israel in the Old Testament. And yet, again, it speaks and is reinterpreted in a way to bring judgment upon Israel. So again, we need to recognize this is a curious miracle. Some point out the only destructive miracle that Jesus worked during his ministry. But it's not out of character. Have we not read the full revelation of the scriptures? Have we not read the wrath of God that would be poured out on the enemies of God? All we have to do is turn to Revelation and you'll get some picture of the idea that that God has wrath against sin. So it is a curious miracle, but it's a an important miracle. It tells us something important. And that brings us to our second point, because he leaves there to go into Jerusalem. And yet as he enters Jerusalem, he's going to take a, a zealous action, isn't he? I like the way that Andreas Kirstenberger speaks of this in his book, The Final Days of Jesus. He writes this, With the riveting events of the previous day still fresh in everyone's mind, all eyes are on Jesus as he enters the city Monday morning. What will the recently held Davidic Messiah do to bring about his kingdom? Jesus wastes no time in answering this question by going straight to the temple. That's interesting. That's well said. That's exactly what he does. He goes straight to the temple. And what does he do there? I believe in some regards, this begins the turn of the crowds away from him 
the crowds who had seen the day before that were cheering for him. He doesn't come and, and bring his questioning against Rome. He doesn't chastise Rome. He chastises the Jewish leaders. He goes into the temple and he throws out the money changers. And he throws out those who are buying and selling. Again, people try to soften this. They say, well, you know, Jesus uh, does have a, a whip that he's made of cords, but we shouldn't imagine that he struck anyone. My friends, the Bible doesn't say. I think we need to be very careful about saying that the Bible, that uh, he didn't do something the Bible didn't say he did. This is an act of violence that Jesus does here in, in upsetting tables and kicking people out and, and having a, a, a whip of cords. We need to be careful to say that Jesus didn't do something. We shouldn't soften what the Bible doesn't soften. Jesus is acting here in righteous indignation. We shouldn't soften that. But why is he acting this way? Well, we're given a real hint here, aren't we? Obviously, there's something in this economic activity that bothers him. Some people will take this too far and say, well, there can't be any economic activity inside the church. It isn't saying that. What bothers Christ here is the nature of the economic activity, I believe. I don't think it's hard to interpret it this way. When you look at it, first of all, what does he quote? He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. And what does he say there? Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And yet they had turned it into the opposite. It could not be a house of prayer for the nations. Because the economic activity was being uh, was taking place inside the court of the Gentiles, the court that was reserved for the nations to come and worship God. And this was a call of Israel to be a light unto the nations, and they had rejected this call completely. What could be more evident than that? I've often said Jonah's an evident um, outworking of that, but you also see it here. They've turned the Gentile court into a marketplace. It wasn't always so. Scholars tell us there's no evidence of the markets inside the temple before A.D. 30. Caiaphas began this as high priest. Now, why did he do it? Well, he would argue it was for convenience. The, previously, uh, the money changers and the animal sales uh, areas were down at the bottom of the uh, Mount of Olives, right in the Kidron Valley. Caiaphas moved into the temple. Now, didn't move all of it into the temple. Moved part of it there. Now, why did he do it? Well, he's going to argue, of course, for convenience sake, because, you know, you, you had to pay your temple tax in a uh, Tyrian shekel. Most people didn't carry that, so you'd have to change your, your money into that. And also, you know, you may not even have an unblemished animal at home to bring. So it's just more convenient to purchase one to sacrifice. But brothers and sisters, while they can say it's convenient, I think... The truth is, it was really unholy. You can imagine that the high priest Caiaphas said, well, you know, who am I going to let in here? <laughs> you can imagine a kickback system, can't you? Uh, you want to sell here, you're going to pay me a certain percentage. There must have been some corrupt uh, motive here because Jesus points right to it. 
But regardless, the fact that they had no problem putting it in the court of the Gentiles says a lot, doesn't it? We'll turn the court that God had intended in his divinely appointed purpose for the Gentiles, for the nations to come unto the worship of God. And we said, no, instead we're going to use it as a supermarket for our own needs. It's interesting to me that that quotation, um, just one of those uh, beautiful ironies, uh, the quotation that you have made my father's house a den of thieves comes from Jeremiah 7.11, and what they essentially did was turn the court of the Gentiles into a 7.11. It was a, a convenient store for Israel on their way into the temple. Make it easier for them. Who cares if the Gentiles come? Christ cared. It bothered him greatly. In fact, you can see he drove them out. You're beginning to see here as you uh, put this story together. There's a judgment on a fig tree and there's a judgment here on Israel. The fig tree looked beautiful. Ornate. No fruit. The religious system of Israel and the religious life of Israel looked beautiful and ornate. This beautiful temple. Gleaming, beautiful temple and yet empty inside. And Christ had also inspected it as we read a moment ago in Mark 11, 11. My friends, we need to recognize what we're being told here. This is a generation of whom Jesus said that they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far away. I was quoting the prophets there again. To get the idea of the greater societal problem going on, let's turn to that reference that Jesus makes in Jeremiah chapter 7. I want you to hear the chapter. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in this land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. What a powerful passage of Scripture. What an important passage of Scripture. But what does it say? The problem is evident here, isn't it? Here were a people who were going out into the world and they were stealing and they were oppressing and they were treating people terribly, mistreating the fatherless and the widows. They were thieves, murderers, adulterers, liars, 
idolaters. The text tells us all these things, and yet they would return to the temple, offer their sacrifices, and what would they say? We are delivered to do all these abominations. In other words, we are delivered from the past abominations that we might continue forward in abominations. If you go to this church, you know that I'm dying to move over to Isaiah chapter 1 now (laughs) because Isaiah lays all this out as well. Don't come falsely into God's presence. Don't come falsely into his temple. Don't come falsely offering sacrifices. In Isaiah 1, you have a people who are running through the outward motions, saying the same thing, we are made right with God by these things. God says, do not trample my courts. I do not even hear your prayers. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize the message of Jesus uh, that he's giving the people in his day, referring back to such passages, saying, listen, God has no interest in phoniness, no interest at all. If it's just outward motions, don't bother. Do not bother. All this selling is not about convenience. It's not about God's holiness. It's about your own enrichment. And God will not have it. If you truly cared to honor God, you would do what he's commanded you to do. You would respect that court not as a marketplace, but as the place that Gentiles may gather to offer worship to our holy God. The fact that you've profaned the outer court for a convenience market to profit your pockets shows you care little about God, His his holiness, or His desires. My friends, it's a strong word, but it's a word that's necessary. The Bible says obedience is better than sacrifice. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You cannot sit here and create this great scheme saying that it's all about the Lord when the entire time you're disobeying him. By the way, that's a message for the modern church. So Jesus is indignant to a people, toward a people who are running through the motions for their own good, not for God's glory. It's a zealous action, zeal for your house. The Lord Jesus had zeal for his father's house. That brings us quickly to our third point. I want to make this quick. This interesting structure of the story that ties all of it together. Uh, The Mark and storyline or the the gospel storyline in Mark is interesting. He uses this idea called an inclusio. That's the official term for it, where you have a story begin and end with another story kind of sandwiched in between it. In fact, uh, that's a very technical word, uh, you know, that scholars use. They call this the Markin sandwich. And so uh, you'll get the idea there, right? The outer stories like two pieces of bread and then uh, whatever you want on your sandwich is, is in between. In this story, you see it, don't you? Uh, the beginning of the story of the fig tree that happens on Monday and then the end of it on Tuesday. And in between there is this story that we read about the temple. 
It's interesting because, as one scholar says, uh, in these inclusios, each story acts as a commentary on the other story. So if you want to understand the temple scene, you have to understand the fig tree scene. And if you understand the you want to understand the fig tree, you have to understand the temple passage. They explain each other. It's interesting in both stories, Jesus inspects and then brings judgment. He inspects the temple in 11.11, and then he judges the temple when he throws out the money changers and those buying and selling. The fig tree, he assesses or inspects, and then he judges. My friends, this is quite simply a message of judgment coming upon Israel. A message of judgment coming upon Israel. It's the same message that he uh, has given time and again. Time and again. He's going to give it uh, the very next day in the parable of the vineyards. The vineyard, and, and we're going to see it as we look at that. But my friends, it reminds us that these events have a meaning beyond their own face value. The cursing of the fig tree is not about a fig tree. It's about a greater fig tree pictured in Israel. And the judgment of those in the temple is really a judgment on the religious life of Israel. Blessed in every way that Paul describes in Romans 9, you know, uh, to us was given the covenants and, and all of these great blessings that they had. And yet it it wasn't fruitful. Like that ornate and beautiful fig tree, there was no figs. And this beautiful, ornate temple, symbolic of God's presence with Israel, and yet Israel has no fruit. My friends, there's a message for us there, isn't there? We can have the trappings of looking ornate and beautiful, but not have any fruit at all. And yet our Lord tells us that if we abide in Him, if we abide in His uh, vine, then we will bring forth fruit. I don't want to exposit that too much, because, but it's something to think about. As we close this morning, there's a, a bigger point that I want to make. Jesus is speaking to a people that would have a hard time believing. In fact, when he gives the parable of vineyard and they begin to understand what he's saying, they are upset by it. We're the Lord's people. <laughs> How can judgment fall on us? And yet Paul tells us in Romans 9 through 11, doesn't he? that they rejected the righteousness of God and tried to build for themselves their own righteousness by works. And that's what's spoken of in, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah 1. Here was an attempt to make themselves right with God by what they do in the temple instead of by faith. And yet, as Paul tells us, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if it's not of faith, it cannot please God. For outside of faith, the Hebrews author tells us that it is impossible to please God. 
But what I fear this morning, brothers and sisters, is we have a modern reliving of this story in our midst in America. We still have a pretty strong memory of religion and religious life in this country. I think Europe is a generation further gone. But in this country, many, many people grew up in church, even though they don't go to church themselves now. And you hear many of these people speak about being Christians or believing in Jesus in some kind of vague way. Now, they don't feel they need to go to the temple every week, things like that. But if you ask them what they're trusting in, they'll give you some vague answer of Christ, or they might say, uh, well, I, I was baptized, or I, I grew up in church, or my father was a preacher, or my mother was a, uh, uh, you know, had an important role in the church, maybe as a, as a, some Sunday school teacher or something, whatever it might be. They might think, you know, I grew up in a house, we had a picture of Jesus on the dining room wall. Or I remember there was a Bible on a bookshelf. It, I remember it well, it never moved. It may have never moved because no one ever bothered to pick it up to read it. But many of these people will refer back to uh, their childhood and say, you know, well, I was baptized or this or that, and, and that they're trusting in those things. And yet there's no living faith. I pray that we would look at the story of Israel here and their expectation that they just have to go through the motions say the right things, and they're amongst the people of God. And what we actually see is that generation is being told you're going to fall under the judgment of God. I pray that if there's anyone listening to this today who are trusting in some work that they had done or they're trusting in some some point they could check on a checklist of, I did this or I did that, they would realize they will not be saved by anything they've done. We are only saved by what Christ has done. There is no running through the motions. We trust in Christ in our heart or we do not. But if we trust in Christ truly, the Scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit is poured out. The love of God is poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Shed abroad, the King James says. I love that, the idea of it just being everywhere in our heart, just poured out in our hearts. But if you have that, then you're being transformed. Transformed in an instant in justification, being conformed to the image of Christ through sanctification. My friends, we must trust in Christ. Ray Comfort often says, it's not enough to believe that a parachute will save you. You have to put it on. It's not enough to say, I believe Jesus existed. I believe he died on the cross. I believe that he is uh, God incarnate. If you don't put a living trust in him, you've got to put him on, so to speak. That's what Ray Comfort's saying. Trust in him, truly, not lip service. What does Jesus refer to there? Their lips are near me, but their hearts are far away. 
We can do the same thing. We can say the right words and our lips can be very near, but our heart's very far away. Remember what the prophet says to David's father. He tells Jesse, Man judges on the outside, but God judges the heart. Paul's argument in those early chapters of Romans to the Jews is this. You've been circumcised in the flesh, but if you weren't circumcised in the heart, it availed you nothing. The circumcision of the flesh is the outward sign and symbol of an inward change. But without the inward change, it's just an outward cutting of flesh and nothing more. Brothers and sisters, if there's a person out there today that recognize that they, no matter how close their words are, their heart is very far away from God, I pray today is the day that they would fall to their knees Recognize that outside of Christ there is no salvation offered. Only in Him and only by faith, by God's grace, and only in Christ Jesus. And I pray that if you're out there and you're His, that you would be thankful that you've been saved from the wrath by His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this Monday of Holy Week. And Father, as we think about these themes of judgment and wrath, we recognize that they are not spoken of in vain in Mark 11, but they point to a wrath that falls on all men, Israel, uh, the nations, all men, Jewish and Gentile alike, if they are outside of Christ. So I pray, Father, that we would hear our need of Christ. And especially this Holy Week as we think about what was done to save fallen sinners, that we would be thankful for your grace and your Son, our Savior, in whom we trust and have life everlasting for our good and his glory. Amen.